Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The holiday season is fast upon us, and with it comes parties, parties, and more parties, all with the opportunity to overindulge, or should I say over-imbibe. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we've gathered together some of the most important voices in today's cocktail world to discuss a new profile of drinks, cocktails that pack a punch in flavor, not alcohol content. That's one of the primary focuses at existing conditions, Don Lee's Greenwich Village Craft Cocktail Bar, where chef-turned-mixologist Bobby Murphy's creative talents are on display. Did you know that a well-crafted, alcohol-free cocktail often costs more to prepare than a high-proof version? Bobby shares his artistry with us and explains why. And we'll also hear from British-born Ben Branson, the first person to create a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit he named Seedlip. It's distilled from green peas. Yes, peas. Hold the alcohol. We're having a new wave cocktail party on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, I'm Don Lee from the bar called Existing Conditions in New York City. There's been an interesting sea change in the craft cocktail movement over the past few years. Bartenders have been shifting their focus from giving their guests a buzz in a glass to mixing up flavorful drinks that often contain little to no alcohol in them. Don Lee, one of the owners of the bar Existing Conditions in New York's Greenwich Village, has been a huge proponent of this non-alcoholic revolution and joined us to talk about it. The thing that we're doing is actually much bigger than simply how do we make non-alcoholic drinks. It's a bigger question of where do we spend our time? We want to create a space that's a safe space for people to spend their time. Everyone goes to work. Everyone has a home. Somewhere in between, you need that third space. And in the past, for many people, that was a church, a community center, maybe a bowling league, a basketball team, some place where they can just be loose, be themselves, be with their friends, somewhere where they don't have to worry about whether it's work or the, you know, the struggles at home. We want that to be our bar. We want our bar to be a third space, especially in New York City. Everyone is living in a tiny apartment. You can't entertain. So where do you go? Instead of bringing people to your living room, you meet people at bars, you meet people at restaurants. And in that same way, if you had a group of friends over at your apartment or your home, you'd want to make sure that everyone is comfortable, everyone's happy. And you're going to have people who are vegetarians or vegans. You're going to have people who drink, people who don't drink. Someone might be pregnant, someone might be on antibiotics. In that same way, if you come to our bar, it is your living room. And when you are hosting people, we want to make sure we have everything available for all types of people. And it's as inclusive as it can be. 
So how do you set out to do that? Give us some concrete examples of the kind of work of discovery you've been doing. Because, you know, Donnelly, you have always been a leader in discovery when it comes to the world of cocktails. So tell me about your discoveries in this vein. I think that the key thing when it comes to making non-alcoholic beverages is that you need to take them seriously. You need to take them as seriously, if not more seriously, than your alcoholic program. For us at Existing Conditions, the most expensive cocktails to make are the non-alcoholic cocktails. They're more expensive because to deliver the level of flavor, to deliver the kind of mouthfeel and a sensation of drinking without alcohol is very difficult. So in order to make something that doesn't taste like just a soda or a lemonade or just made with whatever syrups I had on hand, we have to be very intentional about a process. So we spend more money and more time on the non-alcoholic drinks than we do on the alcoholic drinks. We spend hours sourcing the right ingredients, processing them in the right way, making sure that they're shelf stable or they're frozen and they're, they keep for the amount of time we need them to. And then when you drink them, we want them to drink like a cocktail or like an alcoholic beverage. So for example, we'll have a drink that drinks like a dry white wine. It's just pear juice that we source from New Zealand at the moment because we need to get Comey's pears and they're not available in the United States. Fly them in, we juice them, we centrifuge them to remove all the particulates. Then we infuse them with Mount Olympus tea. It's a sage-like herb from Greece and it creates this dry, wine-like sensation that we then carbonate. And then when you have it, it's like drinking sparkling white wine. And you don't chug it. You can't just down it like a lemonade. You want to sip on it. You can drink it at the same pace as your fellow alcohol drinkers. How do you go about doing this? It's simple, but it's also very technical. When you drink a cocktail, most of us think of it at, you know, if you're even thinking of it as the nuts and bolts of cocktails, I have something alcoholic, I have something sweet, I have something sour, and at the right proportions, they find this mysterious balance. What you aren't thinking about is the technical numbers behind it. So you have a certain alcohol by volume, which means that you have certain amount of alcohol versus amount of dilution and other things. You have a certain bricks that's sugar by weight. And you also have a certain amount of titratable acidity. That's how much grams of acid per milliliters of final product. If you look at cocktails by family, there are these numbers that are behind them that we don't think about, that bartenders just balance by feel, by instinct. When you look at the numbers, you can balance things to be more like them by looking at things that are out, and when you look at something that is out of balance. So we'll start by saying, okay, this orange juice is at this bricks, this much sugar, and then it has this much acid. Therefore, it is very unlike a lemon or a lime, which is less sugar and more acid. So I can push that orange juice to be more like a lime by adding acid to it. Or I can take something that is like lemon juice and add more sugar to it and make it the sweetness profile of orange. So whatever we're starting with, we don't start with the, the, the technical stuff. We start with the idea. I want to make a sparkling white wine. I want it to be pear. I want it to have that floral note. I want it to be similar to a cider. And then how do I make it like a white wine? Well, a white wine has normally an ABV of so much. It has this much sugar. It has this much acid. So then we can adjust the acidity and the sugar so that it has the mouthfeel of the sugar and acid profile of a white wine. 
What a beautiful bit of science that is. Thank you so much for walking us through that and explaining that mysterious discovery that you're in the process of executing in New York City. I hope all my Louisiana Eats listeners will come and see you, and I'm planning on coming myself sometime soon. Thank you, Don. Thank you. We'd love to have you anytime. That was Don Lee, co-owner of Existing Conditions in New York City. Coming up next, Bobby Murphy, the mixologist behind the bar at Existing Conditions, talks about creating an environment where all patrons feel welcome. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph's on the Park, overlooking City Park's ancient oaks, serving locally sourced Gulf seafood, meats, and farm fresh produce all presented with a global spin by Chef Chip Flanagan. Lunch, dinner, Saturday and Sunday brunch, and private parties at 900 City Park Avenue in Mid-City. Now that we're acquainted with existing conditions, Don Lee's inventive new bar, we turn to one of the bartenders who's creating and serving up sophisticated non-alcoholic drinks at this Greenwich Village watering hole. Bobby Murphy's approach to his craft is all about inclusivity. He makes sure to take all patrons into account when he works behind the bar. When Bobby visited our studio, he began his story by describing how he got into non-alcoholic mixology. Well, it, it kind of all dates back in Chicago, actually. I took on a job where I was trying to be a chef and uh, at a, a very famous restaurant, and uh, there's so many applicants there, and I didn't quite have the credentials to work in a uh, quote-unquote Michelin-starred restaurant at that point. Uh, a couple weeks into it, they asked if I'd ever done cocktails before or non-alcoholic stuff, and I Kind of, you know, I said, of course I have. Of course I have. <laughs> a lot of, like a lot of people in life. Um, but developed a non-alcoholic program. Uh, really fell in love with it. It was not only because it was a job that made a lot of sense to me, but like making non-alcoholic drinks in a restaurant uh, is a very, very fun activity because, you know, when you're a small AA, you're always trying to match and pair the, the best wine to something. But with a non-alcoholic component or something that you make, you literally can match things as much as you want. I mean, you can make perfect pairings. 
you can make extensions of food. You can make extensions of things. You can counteract, make parallel, unparalleled drinks. So there's a lot of advantage of like being able to make non-alcoholic stuff because literally you can curtail whatever type of drink you want to make to pair with it. And why do you think that's important? Well, I think it's important for a lot of different things. Um, you know, like, uh, for us at that restaurant, uh, the most important part was that you were looking at like a, you know, a minimum, probably eight to ten courses. And of course, we're talking about those very famous restaurants, Next and yeah, the ne- Aviary, the bar there. Yeah, and then Next, you know, was never shy about pouring a large amount of wine with pairings. Um, so that was always kind of a nice thing. And like, it was something different for people. I think was a, a really important factor is that. You know, intoxication levels on something like that and remembering a large meal that helped out people. Otherwise, too, like aviary was right next door. And most of the time people would do something like having a drink in the aviary, dinner at next and then go to the office afterwards. So we're talking about keeping people around for like six to eight hours sometimes. Um, And to some people, you know, they traveled all over the world. They've had wine everywhere. They have private collections. Simply some things just didn't interest them anymore. So it was kind of a fun thing for them to have. Uh, and try something, you know, share side by side how things worked. And then you have a whole other slew of things. You know, some people don't drink for a myriad of reasons. It may be, you know, pregnancy, illness, um, that they just don't, religious factors. So, like, there's a whole group of people out there. Most of the time it's not really well represented. And uh, I think restaurants now in the past five years have, like, picked it up um, extremely well. And now it's like if you are something in the upper tier of a restaurant, like I think it's almost expected. Um, if, even if they don't have it readily on hand, they'll usually make you something. Um, but most really great, you know, focused restaurants in, in major cities will, you know, by request, if not have products around to, to pair with everything they have. I would love for you to walk me through the building of one of your favorite or most successful non-alcoholic drinks. I always like, I mean, honestly, probably like sparkling drinks. Like I always think sparkling drinks are like really like beautiful and they show this kind of like, like elegance and refinement. Um, you know, probably like, uh, you ever drink Krug champagne? Of course. I, I made this late season, uh, peach, peach non-alcoholic sparkler and, uh, actually used the, the recipe for champagne acid from Dave Arnold that time, you know, it didn't work for him. And, uh, think of like Krug, but like made from peaches, like super dry. And it was just consistently like such a beautiful thing. And people loved it, obviously. Um, but yeah, sparkling drinks always seem to work very well on a non-alcoholic like advantage. But don't you think that it, the sparkling drink has the same sensory, the smell, the taste, it's hitting your palate, your nose easier and better. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And I think, you know, like for me, um, you know, I've gotten hooked on like sparkling water over the past couple of years. And it's now like a thing where, you know, like when I don't want to drink and I don't have time or I'm just simply too busy to like have more than a few drinks in a busy week, like I will have those drinks and then switch to sparkling beverages. And like it, it gives something to me. Like it just gives a satisfaction of like not drinking something plain. Like it feels like I'm having something. Um, as far as other drinks go, like I think the hardest part about making non-alcoholic beverages is like honestly... Um, giving them balance is not necessarily the hardest thing, but like giving them a weight, you know, the things that make alcohol taste good are the things that are the worst for you, you know, conagers, um, 
phenols, esters, like all those things that are in development of alcohol, you just don't find without fermentation or find out um, through distillation. So the biggest thing with those two is that some of that represents like body. And so when you make non-alcoholic drinks, like one of the harder things is like finding ways to make things have that mouthfeel, um, which we've, we've done more than a couple of things to, to help on that and figuring out, you know, things that like, uh, especially for people that are like, you know, pregnant or something and they still like the idea and the enjoyment of alcohol. And we'll go back to, you know, like finding things that represent, uh, you know, tannin and acid, like it would we, if you're like someone that's into wine or, and things of that sort. So it's definitely something that I think that's like on the forefront. It's, it's already here. I mean, it has been for a while. I believe it's also time for the bar owner and the restaurateur to perhaps take notice that if you can offer someone something more than club soda, a Coke, or a glass of water, this is something that can be good for your bottom line. So no matter what you're spending developing these things, I believe the payoff is there. 100%. And... uh, inclusion is huge you know like making people feel like they're a part of something even when they don't necessarily have that same feeling of like being able to participate like everybody else is like the greatest thing ever and that kind of runs back to hospitality but um a real good like um show of this was like this winter i was back home in iowa and i was at my buddy as an annual christmas party and we went over there and his sister wasn't drinking all night and uh love her to death she's kind of like a sister to me and uh it's like kind of connecting the dots and I'm like you're definitely pregnant aren't you and she's like yep <laughs> yes I am and I was like well you should have told me I'll, I'll make you some stuff and so you know as fast and easy as my buddy has like 10 different types of LaCroix stocked in the fridge start reading like the pantries like finding teas like things I probably had like six different drinks for her and the end of the night she just kept hugging me kept hugging me and was like <laughs> I would have left four hours ago like uh-huh. she was like I just would have there would have been no point for me to stay so it's like you think about that that's someone that may be sober in a, a setting too it's like well what's the point in really going to a place if i'm not going to drink and i'm gonna have a club soda while everybody else is having fun and i don't feel like i'm a part of that atmosphere so yes i think it's i think it's about building places that aren't just geared to one type of demographic anymore and that's what we're trying to do at the new bar it's like just come you know it's a bar we want it to be a bar but we want to have some food but we want it to be a place where anybody can come and you can have a drink, a couple of drinks, stay as long or as little as you want. It's really a breakthrough bar. This is a whole new thought when it comes to the traditional bar. Yeah, I mean, I think more than anything, we just, you know, we just want to make it a comfortable place that seems pretty casual for people. Um, especially in like New York City, you know, like they, you have your home, you have your job, and then you have a place that you spend your your third time at, like your you know, you're obviously sleeping at your home, but homes tend to be smaller. So people tend to eat out more um, and then they tend to work longer hours. So, you know, it's that feeling of like, it's not like smaller towns where you have just giant couches and big TVs, you know, and yards to hang out in the back. You know, it's it's something that you choose to spend your time away from your home. So in New York, that's a, a big thing. You know, you can kind of go see what the, the next big thing is. But I think everybody's searching for like some sort of a home, especially in your neighborhood that you feel comfortable in and it's that space where, you know, it's kind of like an afterthought of like, we're just going to go to this place because we're comfortable there. We know we can get this, this and this in a timely matter. They know us, they're friendly. And that's like what we're trying to do with, with everybody. We want to make everybody feel like they're just very much welcome. 
Bobby, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us. Absolutely. That was Bobby Murphy, bartender at Existing Conditions in New York City. meet a distiller who has made it his mission to help bartenders like Bobby Murphy make delicious booze-free drinks by creating a non-alcoholic spirit made with peas. Hello, my name is Ben Branson, uh, the founder of Seedlip, world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirits. When Ben Branson walked into the room, it seemed as if perhaps he was visiting from Middle Earth. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Actually, he'd just traveled to New Orleans from Great Britain with a magical new elixir he'd created from green peas, having learned the alchemy of distillation from an ancient leather-bound volume dating back to 1651. With green flashing eyes accented by his green garb, Ben began to tell me the story of how a copper still in his home kitchen laid the groundwork for Seedlip, the world's first non-alcoholic distilled spirit. By the way, the green peas come from his family's 300-year-old ancestral farm in northern England. I'm obsessed with peas for lots of different reasons. I, I love nature and... My family have been farming for 320 years in England. Um, very proud of that, which meant I, I grew up, you know, with a, a great love and appreciation of the countryside and growing and farming really instilled in me. I got kind of sick of just growing oregano and basil and just sort of normal herbs, I guess, and I ended up kind of finding myself looking at a copy of a book called The Art of Distillation. And it was a book that was a kind of compendium of techniques and recipes and remedies of the 17th century. In it were mentioned alcohol remedies and non-alcohol remedies, all using distillation as a form of extraction, as a way of making them. I don't drink, so I thought it was kind of interesting to muck around at home and a bit of arts and crafts. I learned how to do taxidermy about seven years ago. I like to paint and draw at home. So just kind of, I ordered a little pot still from the internet and then I, I was in a restaurant about three months later with my girlfriend, and, and there were three cocktails mentioned at the top, and then a beautiful selection of food. And they were all alcohol cocktails. And so I was like, wow, the food menu looks amazing. The cocktails sound amazing, but I'm not drinking. Um, and I asked the waitress, have you got anything good that's non-alcoholic? And she almost looked sad, you know? She almost kind of... Her face slightly dropped, mm. and she just said an answer that I found a common answer, which is, oh, you know, we have the usual, Coke, water. And it was then that I was kind of like, wow, this the state of affairs of, of what's on offer, if you're not drinking for whatever reason, is really poor. Usually fruity, usually sweet, no theater, no ritual, no craft, no real consideration 
of building actually a great, complex, sophisticated drink, regardless of whether it's got alcohol in. I was like, I've got to do something about this. Um, so yeah, fast kind of two years it took me uh, to create a whole new process, a whole way of, you know, working with, I worked with historians and talked to botanists, talked to distillers, um, to try and bring this this category and, and a kind of new way of thinking about non-alcoholic drinks to life. Let's talk about this magical book you've got with you. So this is a magical book. Um, it's a tiny little, like, just bigger than a postcard-sized book. Um, it comes everywhere with me. It's the book. It's the art of distillation. Um, this copy that we have here was published in 1664. I wouldn't even say it's written <laughs> in English. It's written in old English. There's yes. some crazy language in there. Uh, the original copy, uh, which is 1651, King George III owned. There's illustrations. Um, there's graffiti from, you know, 1727, signing people signing their names in the book. Um it smells, as you would hope it would smell, musky and old. Magical. Um, it's become this really actually tangible thing that people can hold in their hands as long as they put white gloves on. Yes. Um, the A is 353 years old, and B is a really important part, I think, of, of drinks history. What were your first distillates? What did you make? What did you start making? I was trying, you know, I was putting all kinds of weird and wonderful things in the still from... Sancho peppercorns and Szechuan peppers to chilies to mint to rosemary thyme every, every I was I was giving anything a go to be honest and then working around the point where I actually was like right I, I've got two products that I want to create I started to look at ingredients that are grown on my farm um, and chose to to base Seedlip Garden all around peas because we grow a lot of peas on our farm um, and so we use my peas in this product. Um, and then the other, the other ingredient I wanted to build a flavor profile around was allspice berries. The reason why seedlip is called seedlip is that a seedlip is the name of a seed sower's basket that was used to sow seed by hand back in the 17th century. So there are no machines. We as a family would hand sow our seed and we would use this basket called a seedlip, which I thought was fitting in that we take ingredients that are grown in the ground from seed, literally to lip. What was it like when you first held that bottle in your hand? I hand-bottled a thousand bottles, and I delivered them myself. I labeled them myself. Um, you sold them yourself, I sold obviously. them myself. And I thought they would last five months. Those thousand bottles sold out in three weeks. And then I, I put my cell number on the website. I put my email address on there. You know, I, I kind of, I just wanted to sort of, okay, I don't know how this is going to go. And so for those thousand bottles sell out in three weeks, and then the next thousand sell out in three days, and the third thousand sell out in 30 minutes, um, <laughs> we really want to celebrate the peas. Um, we think that, A, they make a fantastic garnish. They look great. Um, and they reference, you know, the dominant ingredient that we so love and that I farm. And whether that's a handful of frozen peas in there, whether that's, you know, a fresh sugar snap pea, um, fresh pods, peas through cocktail skewers, you name it. Well, you, you're dressed in green. You look like you sprang right from the <laughs> pea patch, my dear. 
Well, we just, as a team, we handpick all our peas. Um, they go from field to freezer in 90 minutes. Um, and then we can draw them down and distill them as we need to. How long do you suppose you can grow enough peas to sustain your production? So we're farming peas on a big scale. So we farm 600 acres of peas. That's a lot. It's a lot of peas. That's a big farm in Great Britain, isn't it? Is. It is, yeah. I mean, Great Britain is quite small. And to give point of context, they think that in England, the average person eats 9,000 peas a year. So we love our peas. What are the sort of things people are doing with your product? A seed lip and tonic, we think, is a great alternative to a gin and tonic or a vodka and soda or a whiskey and coke. Um, and then we serve our seed lip garden with peas. And we serve seed lip spice with a nice grapefruit twist. So that's like really simple. People can make at home. They can ask for in a bar. I mean, the, the reaction that we've had uh, from some of the best chefs and best bartenders in the world has been pretty surreal, to be honest. Uh, we're now served in the three best cocktail bars in the world. Dead Rabbit in New York, Dandelion in London, the American Bar at the Savoy in London. On the restaurant side, we're now served in over 80 Michelin-star restaurants around the world. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm honored oh. to have met you here in the infancy of Seedlip. <laughs> yeah, we are babies. And I hope you'll stay in touch and keep us posted. Absolutely. We're coming back next year for a start. Well, we'll see you. I can't wait to catch up again. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Ben Branson, founder of Seedlip. Why the fuss about alcohol? And what's up with those unfortunate hangovers? We'll discuss all that and more when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarain's. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Why all the fuss about alcohol? And what's up with those unfortunate hangovers? Alcohol is one of the most popular psychoactive substances in the world. It can have powerful effects on your mood and mental state. 
By reducing self-consciousness and shyness, alcohol may encourage people to act without inhibition. At the same time, it impairs judgment and promotes behavior people may end up regretting. Uh Uh-oh, sound like last year's Christmas party? There's a contingency that contends moderate alcohol consumption is good for your health. However, the truth is there is no strong research indicating that the benefits linked to moderate drinking are greater than those of not consuming any alcohol at all. Author Shaughnessy Bishop Stahl just published a new book entitled Hungover, The Morning After and One Man's Quest for the Cure. In it, he contends that without hangovers to stop us, we'd all be inebriated all the time. So what's going on in your body when you're hungover? Here's how he describes it. A headache, but so much more. Something terrible and growing. Like your brain has started to swell, pressing against your cranium, eyes pushing out of their sockets. You cradle your head in shaking hands to keep your skull from splitting. But in truth, your brain isn't growing at all. It is, in fact, drastically shrinking. As you slept, your body, bereft of liquid, had to siphon water from wherever it could, including from those three pounds of complex meat that hold your messed up mind. So now, your brain, in the awful act of shrinking, of contracting, is pulling at the membranes attached to your skull, causing all this pain, tugging at the fibers of your very being. Ouch! I don't want anything pulling at the membranes that literally hold my brain together in my skull. So, this holiday season, match every alcoholic drink with a non-alcoholic one and see that your guests have that opportunity, too. Your brain and your guests will thank you. Have more questions about the effect booze has on the body? Next, We'll hear from registered dietitian Molly Kimball, who has her own thoughts on moderate alcohol consumption. Well, I got a tough hangover. I've been drinking both night and day. Yes, I got a terrible hangover. I've been drinking both night and day. Just can't get myself together Since my baby been gone away For centuries, scientists have been debating whether or not alcohol is good for you or if swearing it off altogether has any health benefits. While nobody seems to have a direct answer, one simple way to determine its effects on our bodies is to experiment with abstinence. At the beginning of each year in Great Britain, a campaign called Dry January challenges drinkers to avoid alcohol for a month. Millions sign up every year, with participants tracking the results on their bodies and well-being. Here in New Orleans, we have our own popular alcohol-free event that takes place right after Mardi Gras and continues through Lent. Registered dietitian Molly Kimball spearheads this annual challenge, which she hopes participants will find both rewarding 
and edifying. Here she is to tell us all about it. All right, so the challenge is to, as a lot of people here in New Orleans do, not drink during Lent. That's not any news, though. People do that all the time here in New Orleans. If you're going to give up alcohol or if you're thinking about it, we're encouraging you to do that. The key is to take that and make it into your own self-experiment. So we've detailed out three key steps to do. Number one, before you even give up alcohol, so before you stop drinking, record your weight. Number two, take a close-up photo of your face. That lets us see what the circles are like under your eyes, the texture of your skin, the redness or puffiness of your skin. And then number three, we have a series of labs to get done. And these labs are various markers throughout our, our body and indicators of alcohol's effect, particularly things like liver enzymes and inflammatory markers. The challenge being not only give up that alcohol for Lent, but do all these things pre and then do them again post. So that gives us a real good visual and real good metrics to kind of gauge, well, what was or what is the impact that alcohol has on my body? I think something like this is just kind of tuning in and seeing how's it affect me, but again, being extremely clear. We're not saying don't drink ever, alcohol's bad, all this stuff. I think anybody who knows me and listens to me as a dietitian, we're always figuring in people's alcohol. That's just part of what we do here in New Orleans. But this is kind of just that if we're going to do the alcohol free for 40 days, make it that little self-experiment. And I think what I've seen just informally with clients of mine who've done this, seeing that drastic reduction in some of these inflammation markers is really significant. And it can be motivation to kind of maybe not stop drinking, but really kind of remind us to keep things in check a little bit better than some of us do. Can you give us a specific story about someone whose life it changed? Yes. And I think we all kind of, if we think about it, we all have those people that we think that person just looks the way they do. You know, the, the kind of red, round face. You may say kind of the meatball looking, you know, texture and look to their face. And then you see someone and you go, gosh, what happened? What did they do differently? They look completely different. There's been several of those, I think, in the past year that have kind of been a catalyst for me to say, wait a minute. You know, when we can see this visible inflammation in our face and when we know if we overdo it the night before, we have too many cocktails, our eyes are puffy, we have these circles, we've got the puffy face, our rings are tight. Well, it's not just that inflammation that's happening that we can see like that. This is also happening on a deeper level. So improved um, texture of the skin. So not the dryness, not the flakiness and ruddiness. So improved texture, improved appearance of the skin, and especially under eye circles. So less under eye circles, whiter whites of the eyes. So hands down, better sleep. That was the most noticeable, and it didn't take long for that to happen. Within a few days, people would say, wow, I'm sleeping better. I could always maybe fall asleep if I'd had a few cocktails, but I was waking up throughout the night. So better quality sleep, deeper sleep, waking up feeling more rested across the board was just a given for almost pretty much everybody that was the feedback. That was the, some of the physical things and also better clarity. So less brain fog through the day, more focus, more clarity. That was across the board over and over and over the feedback we got. And I think that was what really tuning into those things was what made people able to stay on track, even if they were kind of had that temptation. Some things that I thought were really interesting is I think some people did it just because, wow, this is kind of a Lent challenge. Let me do it. Others maybe had a question mark of if they were doing, you know, a little bit too extreme, too excessive and doing it under the umbrella of health. 
made it less daunting or less intimidating. And there was a lot of people in them coming to terms with, I'm drinking for the wrong reasons. Some people who realize that, okay, I really maybe have been taking this too far. Interestingly, the people that are closest to them that you would think would say, oh, thank goodness, you're finally dialing it back, actually would give them a hard time about it. And you realize that when you cut back on drinking, some of the people around you, if they maybe have you know issues as well, it makes them uncomfortable when you dial it back. I had people who said that you know their partner would say, "Well, you're boring now." Well, mm. that's not very encouraging mm. to keep going with this, you know. And so that was some of the things, even within interpersonal relationships, that people didn't have the support that they had hoped that they would get from the people around them. You know, I definitely don't want people to think, "Oh my gosh, like this is a finger wagging thing, and we shouldn't drink." Not that at all, but. It definitely opened my eyes to when someone's struggling with this and when it's a challenge, alcohol is truly everywhere. And it's places that you don't expect it to be. You know, it's at the coffee shop. It's at the health food store checkout line. And I think that can be fun. Oh, we're going to a movie. Oh, let's grab a couple of these. But it can also be a really daunting thing for someone who does have the issues with it and is trying to limit it because the access is everywhere. That was Molly Kimball, registered dietitian. If you're interested in joining the Alcohol Free for 40 Challenge in 2019, keep your eyes open for Molly Kimball's column in NOLA.com in the coming months. And on social media, follow the hashtag Alcohol Free for 40. That's Alcohol Free for 40. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. I'm Charlotte Voisey, Director of Advocacy for William Grant & Sons. When we last caught up with Charlotte Voisey at Tales of the Cocktail in 2017, she was a brand ambassador for William Grant & Sons. Today, she is their first director of advocacy and is making significant changes in the way the company presents itself to the public. That was quite evident at this year's Tales, where we caught up with her on a rainy Wednesday evening just before the legendary William Grant opening party was about to begin. Charlotte, would you please explain your new position with William Grant? Because the last time we spoke, you were merely a brand ambassador. (laughs) (laughs) Merely a brand ambassador. Well, now I'm a brand ambassador who's all grown up. Um, So it's now my pleasure at William Grant & Sons to look after the team of brand ambassadors. So that's kind of elevated my position to what we call director of advocacy. But what that really means is I still get to look after all the bartender relationships, so the big parties, the events, education, uh, things like Tales of the Cocktail still fall in my wheelhouse. So that's the good news. So um, for this year at Tales of the Cocktail, with all of the change that's happened, um, not only with Tales this year, but just the mood of the industry in general, at William Grant & Sons, we felt like we needed to be really aware and supportive and contribute positively to the industry. We have this tremendous platform, which is the Wednesday night party. 
you know, 1,500 people come along. So we have this great audience to talk to. So we wanted it to really mean something this year. So we decided to go alcohol-free, spirit-free. Spirit-free in New Orleans. I mean, this is a huge radical move for an event that is basically an alcohol-centric event. Yeah, and that is exactly why we wanted to do it here. It's the biggest platform we have as a company anywhere in the world, any time of the year. So it's when the message would be heard the loudest. My analogy is, you may know, like Alicia Keys went makeup free, right, a a while ago. It's like, if you're going to do that, do it on your wedding day to show that you really mean it. And this is our biggest moment, and we really mean it. What has the reaction been? It's been overwhelmingly positive. Most people have admitted that it's a big, bold, brave move that was not something that they thought was was coming. They were surprised. A couple of people have been a little bit confused. You know, we're here to celebrate the cocktail. But what I've tried to explain is that a cocktail doesn't have to be alcoholic. You know, we're a gathering of beverage professionals. We should be masters of our craft in spirits, in wine, in beer, in non-alcoholic drinks as well, in service, in hospitality, everything. So tonight we're focusing on spirit-free. Tell me how in the world you design a party, a party that starts at 9.30 at night. It's a late night gathering. How do you do that with no alcohol and entertain and please the audience? So the heart and soul of this party, um, and this year's no different, it's always been this way, has been the connections between people and the camaraderie that we have between our ambassador team and with the bartender community. People think that we gather to drink, but in actual fact we gather to see each other, to hug it out, to chat, to share ideas, to meet mentors, to catch up on what in some cases is a year without seeing these people. So it's the relationships, it's the social moment. All of that still applies. And we'll still be serving delicious things to drink and eat. They just, it it won't be with alcohol. There are several major brands in your portfolio. So in the past, each drink would be designed to show off whichever one Mm -hmm. of the liquors that you're promoting. Mm -hmm. How do you do this with an alcohol-free drink? with a little help from our friends. So there's a wonderful young lady called Julia Momos in Chicago. She's a bartender and recently has made her name in what she calls spirit-free cocktails. She has dedicated a lot of her talent and passion into how to create beautifully complex, balanced, interesting, delicious cocktails that are spirit-free. So I called her and said, I need your help because the expectations for this party are very high. And we can't just be serving water or juices or, you know, cute cold brew and that kind of stuff. We need to deliver excellence in cocktails, but we need them to be spirit-free. And the recipes she has created specifically for tonight have blown me away, and I cannot wait for everyone else to try them. Charlotte, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us on Louisiana Eats. It's always a treat when we can capture you for a little conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Charlotte Wasi, Director of Advocacy for William Grant & Sons.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcast and also order a personalized copy of my new book, The Pascal's Manali Cookbook. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the website, too, as well as directions for how to find us. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don's Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Tableau, brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>